Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we open now the scriptures, we pray that the Holy Spirit, who inspired the human author of these words, so that they are your own words breathed out, that he would also enlighten the eyes of our hearts and give us understanding so that we might receive your word with grateful faith and respond with joyful obedience. Work these words deep into our hearts, for we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll open now your, uh, your Bibles to our sermon text, Acts chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 1 through 13 in the Pew Bibles, page 909. So Acts chapter 2. 1 through 13. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. This morning, we continue our study through the book of Acts. We saw Jesus ascend to his heavenly throne, and then last time we saw the time of preparation, of waiting as the apostles and the other disciples dedicated themselves to prayer, and they also chose Matthias to replace Judas in the, as the, in the office of apostle. And this morning, we come to the day they have been waiting for, Pentecost, when the ascended Lord Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on his church. Here is the fulfillment of the promise of the Father. Here is the dawning of a new day for God's people as they receive not John's baptism with water, but rather Christ baptizes them with the Holy Spirit. And so this morning we want to consider what Christ accomplished on the day of Pentecost, what he did for his people, and what that means for you and for me today. 
For this is a significant day in the history of the redemption of God's people. A day to be remembered, a day to be celebrated alongside the others that we commemorate every year. We celebrate Christ's birth at Christmas, his death and resurrection on Good Friday and Easter, and just as significant is the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. And we need to understand the Holy Spirit. We need to know his presence in our lives. Just as John Stott writes, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. And yet Pentecost is so often misunderstood today. Rather than being considered an important day in the history of redemption, many look at it as an example, an experience that needs to be repeated over and over again. But only for a select few. Only if you have enough faith. But that is not what we see here. Just as you cannot repeat the incarnation, just as you cannot repeat Christ's death and resurrection over and over again, neither can you repeat Pentecost over and over. And so this morning we want to cut through the confusion, the false interpretations, and see what Christ accomplished for his church on the day of Pentecost. We're looking at just the first 13 verses this morning. We certainly can't consider all the misinterpretations out there, but I hope to show you what Christ has done and what he has done for the church in general, but not just that, what he has done for you, believer, and how his gift of the Holy Spirit incorporates you into his holy temple and how it empowers you for the Christian life, how it empowers you for witness. So let's begin with verse 1. It reads, when the day of Pentecost arrives. And we can stop right there because this is an acceptable translation, but the underlying Greek is even more descriptive. It could better be translated, when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. Now you're familiar with the fulfillment of prophetic predictions But this here is the fulfillment of a prophetic type. Luke is saying that now this will be the fulfillment of the spiritual reality that the Feast of Pentecost has been pointing forward to all along. As I mentioned earlier in our scripture reading, Pentecost was already a Jewish festival. And Jews from all over the ancient world had traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. In order to understand how this is going to be a fulfillment of Pentecost, of course, we need to first understand what is the significance of Pentecost under the Old Covenant given through Moses. Pentecost is the Greek name. It meant 50th. But it was also known as the Feast of Weeks, for it was celebrated seven weeks and one day after the Sabbath of Passover. Of course, that meant it fell on the first day of the week, the day of the Lord's resurrection, the Lord's Day. It had more than one name, though. Actually, the first name it's given in Scripture is the Feast of the Harvest. For this is when the first fruits of the wheat harvest were brought before the Lord. And we read earlier how they were to make two loaves and to wave them before the Lord. And so the people gave thanks. They celebrated the Lord's provision for them. 
And the point is that the first fruits of the harvest, they are a sign of what is to come, of more to come. The first fruits are a down payment, a foretaste of what is coming, a sign that the Lord is the one who will grant the harvest for his people. And with those things in mind, we want to ask, how then do we see Pentecost, this Pentecost here in Acts chapter 2, the feast of, or how do we see Pentecost fulfilled in the passage before us? And the ultimate answer is that we will see that Christ is bringing the first fruits of his harvest of the nations into his new covenant church. But the first step towards that harvest is the baptism of the Holy Spirit as Christ pours the Spirit out on the church. And we see the signs of the Holy Spirit's coming in verses 2 to 4. Wind, fire, and the gift of speaking in other languages. Now first, the first sign is the wind. Verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. It was not an actual wind. It didn't knock them over, but the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And this is significant. This sign is pointing to who is coming. And here it helps to know Hebrew and Greek because the term ruach in Hebrew, it can mean spirit or breath or wind. It's the same for pneuma in Greek. These are closely related concepts. And so we often see God's life-giving spirit, breath, or wind in Scripture. It's all one word. For example, in Genesis 2-7, we read, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathes into his nostrils the breath, the spirit, the, the wind of life, and the man became a, li- a living creature. And we have the climactic prophecy in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel beholds a valley of dry bones, which the Lord tells him, this is the spiritual state of Israel. They are cut off. They are without hope. They are dry bones. But the Lord tells him, prophesy to the breath, ruach, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then it is followed by this promise. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Now here we have in Acts 2, with the arrival of this mighty rushing wind, the fulfillment of this promise, the spirit as the wind. Next we have the next sign in verse 3. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Again, it's not an actual fire, but tongues like fire. And it is described that the fire is dividing. It's as if this fire is spreading like fire. It's resting on each and every believer there, all 120 who were present. Now, we do sometimes use this term tongue to describe tongues of flame, flame as it is licking it, it looks like tongues. But I believe this term, it's being used specifically here because the fire is in the form of a physical tongue. This symbolizes the gift of tongues or languages that we're going to see in a moment. But first, this imagery of fire, 
It's often used by God as a manifestation of his personal presence. And so let's just consider where we see it. First, we have the Lord's appearance to Abraham as a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot as he makes his covenant with Abraham. Then there's his appearance to Moses in the form of fire at the burning bush. Then the pillar of fire and cloud from the time of the crossing of the Red Sea. And then even more climactically descending in Mount Sinai, descending on Mount Sinai in fire and lightning and thunder and smoke in Exodus 19 and 20. Then, and so here we have the arrival of God, the Holy Spirit, in the form of fire. Now, it is important to note, because it came up in, in chapter 1, it's important to note that this is the baptism of the Spirit, not the baptism of fire, which John the Baptist had mentioned. Christ will also baptize with fire. But as I said back in chapter 1, that refers to the final judgment. That is the baptism of fire, a baptism of judgment on the wicked. Then verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here we have the third sign. The ESV uses the traditional translation, tongues, and that helps you see the parallel with the tongues of fire. We shouldn't be confused here by the misuse of this gift of tongues today. These are not ecstatic utterances of unintelligible speech, but rather, as we see in verse 8, the crowd of those gathered from all over the ancient world, each one heard them speaking in their own native language. And so to give an example, perhaps John was speaking in Parthian. Perhaps the Apostle James was speaking in ancient Egyptian. Perhaps Matthew was speaking in Latin, and they were all declaring the mighty works of God. Now, some have mistakenly thought that this was a miracle of of hearing, that they spoke in, in one way, in one language, and somehow God made each individual hear this in his or her own language. But there are two problems with this view. First, if you look closely at verse 4, you see it, it makes very clear that this was a miracle of speech. It says, they spoke in other languages as the Holy Spirit enabled them, as he gave them the ability to do so. But second, the Holy Spirit is filling the believers. He is working on those who spoke, not on those who listened. Although we'll see in a moment, he is about to work in many of them as he brings in the harvest. So it is a miracle of speaking, not of hearing. So we see three signs, wind and fire and tongues, all confirming that Christ has poured out the Holy Spirit upon his church. What is the significance of all this? What does it mean? We see Peter's interpretation in verse 16 and following. He says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And the quotation continues. We'll look at it in more depth next time. But Peter's making the argument that scripture is being fulfilled as God as Christ pours out his spirit on the disciples. 
The emphasis here is on all. All receive the Spirit without distinction. The Holy Spirit is not given to a select few. It's not for just the elite, for those who have more faith or for those who are more mature, but rather the Holy Spirit is poured out on all of God's people, all those who put their faith in Christ. In the Old Testament, the Lord would often anoint the leaders of his people with the Spirit to empower them for their task of leadership. We see this in Numbers chapter 11. Of course, Moses, the the great prophet who who led the people, he was anointed with the Spirit. But then in Numbers 11, the Lord says he will anoint the 70 elders along with Moses so that they can bear the burden of leadership alongside him. And as the Spirit descended on the 70 elders, they each began to prophesy. And Moses was thankful to have 70 other Spirit-empowered leaders alongside him, but he said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And now here with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we have exactly what Moses was longing for, exactly what Joel had predicted, a new age when every member of God's people is anointed with his spirit. Now some have said that with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what we have here is the birth of the church. That's not quite right. That's actually dispensational theology speaking because they put a big division between Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. But we properly say God began his church with Abraham and there is one continuous church from that time forward. So this is not the birth of the church, but something new is happening here. Christ is inaugurating his church as the new covenant temple the dwelling place of the living God. Again, we need to go back and review a little history, some of which I've reviewed just recently in the sermon on Christ's ascension. When Moses dedicated the tabernacle, that pillar of fire and cloud, it descended upon the tabernacle, it filled the tent with God's glory. The same thing happened at the dedication of Solomon's temple, 2 Corinthians 7.1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. But then, as Christ dies on the cross, we read, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, Luke 23, 45. This was God's sign that the age of his dwelling in that temple, the temple made by human hands, was over. Now Christ was going to present his sacrifice of himself in the heavenly temple, the temple not made with human hands. And that temple was only a shadow and a copy of the temple above. Now Christ had also said he was establishing a new covenant in his blood. And under the new covenant, he must inaugurate a new temple for the glory of God. And so here in Acts chapter 2, we see the Lord's glorious presence descending to dwell in this new temple. A temple made of living stones, the temple that is comprised of his people, the church. And so we see that the description of the sound of the mighty rushing wind, the dividing tongues of flames, these are the parallels. This is the new covenant version of God's holy temple being filled with his glory cloud 
on the day of its dedication. And then from here forward, this is the universal teaching of the New Testament. For example, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? And what glorious good news this is for you and for all of us today, that God is dwelling within us by his spirit. This means that we don't go to a temple to meet him. We don't go to a temple to worship him. For we, the people, are his temple. His spirit dwells within us. And wherever we are, as we gather together on the Lord's day, we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. This also means that God is always with us. Wherever we are, he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And he is always at work within us. As he says, he is working within us for our sanctification. Of course, the implications of, of God's spirit within us are vast. I'm just scratching the surface this morning. But there is also a, a subtle implication here, although it's, it's not brought out explicitly. But if this is a new temple, it's replacing the old. That means that the old is passing away. It will be destroyed just as Jesus predicted in his Olivet Discourse. This is, this is subtle. The, the focus here is on the positive, that the Lord is inaugurating his new covenant temple. The next thing we see is that the Lord is bringing in the first fruits the harvest of the nations into this new temple, gathering them all into one church. And so with all the believers full of the Holy Spirit, they are speaking in all these various languages. We are told that a large crowd quickly gathers around them. Now Luke doesn't detail how the gathering transitions from being inside what must have been a, a large house with 120 gathered. That's described in verse 3. But then they must have somehow transitioned to some sort of large public courtyard, perhaps even the temple courts, for there must have been a crowd of many thousands. We are told in verse 41 that 3,000 were baptized and added to the number of the disciples. And so there must have been even more than that listening. Now the crowd is drawn in by what they hear. These Galileans, Galileans of all people, with their uncultured, backwoods accent, and yet here they are, speaking all sorts of different languages. And so the crowds, they are marveling. They are asking, how can this be? And then Luke takes four whole verses, verses 8 to 11, to list out all the places they had come from. And this implicitly gives us insight into all the languages that uh, the disciples are speaking. And the list, it generally moves from east to west, starting with the, the Parthians. These are the arch rivals of Rome, and then includes Judea itself, and then several regions that are under the control of Rome. And then it goes all the way to Rome itself, and then goes back east with a final mention of the Cretans and the Arabians. Now, for the most part, these are the Jews of the dispersion. They'd been scattered abroad by the exile, by the other misfortunes that have befallen Israel. But they've all returned now for the feast. And Luke even mentions they're not all Jews. There are some proselytes as well. These are believing Gentiles who have put their hope in the God of Israel. And there are many clues here in the passage that are all pointing us back 
to an earlier account in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. In verse 5, Luke says that the Jews here are from every nation of the earth. And that's pointing us back to the list of all the nations. And the list of all the nations in verses 8 and 11 is hearkening us back to the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, which details the offspring of Noah and all the nations that they would become. And now it's, perhaps it's a coincidence, but Luke lists 16 nations in these verses. And the table of nations in Genesis 11 is organized into 16 groups by the 16 grandsons of Noah. Then in the very next chapter, Genesis 11, men in their pride... Starting out by speaking all one language, they attempt to build a tower to heaven. You know it as the Tower of Babel. The Lord, for their pride, punishes them by confusing their language so that they could no longer understand one another, and he scatters them across the earth. What is happening here in Acts 2? Here on the day of Pentecost, we see a reversal of the curse of Babel, as the Lord is beginning to bring the harvest of the nations into his church. There's one more parallel between the accounts. Luke uses the term confused. The ESV translates it bewildered in verse 6. It's the same Greek term used twice in the Greek version of Genesis 11. But here in Acts 2, it's not a confusion of misunderstanding, but a confusion of wonder that they were each hearing and understanding the testimony of the disciples in their own language. Now, this is an absolutely incredible picture, a foretaste of how the gospel will go out to all the nations, how it will cross every boundary and reach to every people and tribe and nation and tongue. And yet, we must be very clear and admit that as amazing as what happens here on the day of Pentecost, as spectacular as it is, This is only the first fruits. Because note that although these men and women, they come from all these different nations, they are for the most part ethnically Jews with just a few non-Jewish proselytes thrown in. Now the Lord will use them. They will soon return to their native lands, either because they were only here for a short time for the festival or because we'll soon see persecution is coming and they will be scattered abroad. Either way, they will go out and they will carry the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And these first fruits are a foretaste, a foreshadowing of a bountiful harvest to come. And so Pentecost, the festival of the harvest of the first fruits is being fulfilled. The Lord's harvest of all the nations is soon coming. That is foreshadowed in what we see here on the day of Pentecost. It all begins with the first fruits of the harvest. 3,000 souls who put their faith in Jesus Christ and are baptized on the day of Pentecost. So we've seen what Christ accomplished on the day of Pentecost, how he pours out the Holy Spirit on his church, inaugurating them as his new covenant temple, bringing in the first fruits of the harvest. But now we need to ask, What is the application of this for you today? I've already made some applications as we've gone along. Because of Pentecost, you believer, 
have received the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is given to all, you are a member of God's new covenant temple. But others today, they say, no, you need to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You need to have a Pentecost experience. This is a second blessing that comes after conversion for those who are mature, for those who pray and wait like the first disciples, only for those who have enough faith. Of course, they point to the experience of these first disciples. But when you look at the example, notice they were expressly commanded by Jesus to pray and wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit was poured out. But now this has happened. This has been fulfilled. There is no such parallel command for us today. We are never told to seek the baptism of the Spirit or to wait or to pray for such a thing. It's also worth noting that Pentecost comes in three stages. We should acknowledge this, and we'll see this as we work our way forward in the book of Acts. But even though this happens, this cannot be used as an argument for this this, uh, poor theology. And so just as we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the gospel would go out in three stages, first in Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. So the Holy Spirit is poured out first here in Jerusalem upon the Jews. Then in Acts chapter 8, when Philip first preaches the gospel in Samaria, they receive the gospel, they are baptized, but in God's providence, they do not receive the gift of the Holy Spirit until the apostle the apostles Peter and John come and lay their hands upon them. Now, some argue, because there's this delay between their belief and the gifts of the Spirit, this is evidence that something extra is needed to receive the Spirit today. But this delay, it's unique to the foundation of the church. They needed the confirmation of the apostles so that there might be unity between Jew and Samaritan to heal that age-old divide. And so when the apostles came and in their presence, the Holy Spirit came upon them with power, there was no disputing that the Samaritans were part of Christ's one church. Then the third stage comes in Acts chapter 10, when Peter preaches the gospel to the Gentiles, and they believe and the Holy Spirit is poured out on them as well. This time there's no delay, because Peter the apostle was there. And though there is an even greater divide between Jew and Gentile, Peter later testifies. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Acts 15, 8 and 9. And so this outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Jew and then Samaritan and then Gentile, it happened as a part of the foundation of the church. And from that time forward... The gift of the fullness, the the baptism of the Holy Spirit is tied to a person's regeneration when a person puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can see this very clearly by looking at how Paul uses this language of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And this is the only other place where this term, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is used other than where it's used by John the Baptism, where he is predicting Pentecost, and then where it's later quoted by Jesus in Acts chapter 1, right before Pentecost itself. And so Paul writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. In one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Paul's point here is very clear. The baptism of the Spirit is not a second blessing that is received by a select few. Paul's whole point here is that the fact that all, regardless of whether you are Jew or Greek, slave or free, whoever you are, whatever your background, all are united because all have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now this couldn't possibly be a spirit received by some few or it would provide it wouldn't provide the unity that he is speaking of here. John Stott connects this to our baptism when he writes, water baptism is the initiatory Christian rite because spirit baptism is the initiatory Christian experience. And so there is no need to seek a secondary spirit baptism after your conversion. If you are trusting in Christ, That is only because the Spirit of God is already dwelling in your heart. He has granted you the new birth. He has given you the faith to believe. He has incorporated you into the body of Christ. You are a member of the new covenant temple of God. Now, along with that, let me just address briefly the false teaching that the baptism of the Holy Spirit must be accompanied by the same gift that we see given to the disciples on the day of Pentecost, that is, the gift of speaking in other languages. And we see that this gift is given by God for a very particular purpose, for bringing in the first fruits of the harvests of the nations. Now, there's more to the purpose of this gift of tongues, which I'll have time to go into more detail next time when we look at Peter's speech. But just consider with me what else Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12. He says... Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To teach that if you haven't received this one particular gift, then you don't have the Holy Spirit, is to go against the explicit teaching of Scripture And this is blatant false teaching and a denial of what God's word says, and it has deeply harmed many sincere believers. Rather, we ought to rejoice in the great variety of gifts that God's spirit equips us with and use them for the building up of his body for the glory of Christ. Of course, it doesn't help that the modern Pentecostal version of tongues cannot even be said to be the same gift that we see here in Acts chapter 2. For it is not the speaking of intelligible foreign languages, but rather an unintelligible language. And so you cannot even make the argument that it is following the pattern of Pentecost. Now the point is that Pentecost is a unique and unrepeatable day in the history of redemption when Christ pours out his spirit on his church. As Ferguson writes, we should no more anticipate a personal Pentecost, then we will experience a personal Jordan, wilderness, Gethsemane, or Golgotha. Pentecost is no more repeatable as an event than is the crucifixion, or the resurrection, 
or the ascension of our Lord. To assume that it was, would be tantamount to producing a Pentecostal form of the medieval mass, repeating what is unrepeatable and consequently diminishing, if not actually denying its true significance. There was only one day when Pentecost was fulfilled. But of course, it does have lasting consequences for all of Christ's people today. Because of Pentecost, you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit when you put your faith in Christ. If anyone wants to speak of a personal Pentecost or a Pentecost experience, that happened at your conversion when you received the Holy Spirit. And while Scripture never commands you to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because you already have it, it cannot be taken away, there is one thing that it does tell you. We read in Ephesians 5, 18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Did you hear those words? Be filled with the Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers both received the outpouring of the Spirit, they were baptized in the Spirit, but they were also fully saturated, filled to the brim. And then after that, in the book of Acts, we see several occasions when this filling and overfilling is mentioned. Before Peter addresses the Sanhedrin in Acts 4, he is filled with the Holy Spirit to empower him for a speech. And then at the end of the same chapter, after they pray, the whole gathering of believers, they are filled and they are empowered for their continued witness. The first deacons in Acts chapter 6 are required to be men who are filled with the Spirit and wisdom. And so we want to ask, what does it look like? What does this mean to be filled with the Spirit? Of course, we need to remember the Holy Spirit is not some abstract force. He is a person. One of the three persons of the Trinity, he is always with you, but to be filled with him means that he more and more dominates every aspect of your life. It means you know him more and more. Now, a person who is, just compare, a person who is full of himself, as we say, is self-focused, full of pride, obsessed with himself. But if you are a person who is full of the Holy Spirit, that means you are focused on him. You are aware of his presence. He is guiding and directing you into all truth. You are full of his holiness, full to overflowing of the fruit that the Spirit produces. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, the command is be The command is, be filled with the Spirit, present tense, continual. You are to be filled with the Spirit continually. This isn't a one-off, ecstatic, emotional experience, although it is true that as the Spirit transforms every aspect of your life, this means that the truth will touch your heart and your emotions will be transformed. He truly is to be a fire within you. But you won't necessarily be able to look at a person and say, oh, he is really full of the Spirit because he wears his emotions on his sleeve. Emotionality has nothing to do with being full of the Spirit. To be full of the Spirit should be a continuous thing. 
And therefore, to a certain extent, it should be an ordinary thing, although as the Spirit transforms us and transforms believers, it should be making us into something truly extraordinary, something truly different from everyone else in this ungodly world. That means that when you go through trials, when you are squeezed, if you are full of the Holy Spirit, what is displayed is a character shaped by the Spirit. Hope, faith, and love that are formed by the Spirit. And so, the command here is to seek the filling of the Spirit. Pray for Him to fill every part of your life every day. And the Spirit will transform you. He is with you, believer. And He is the comforter. He is the Spirit of all truth. He is the Spirit of sonship, the guarantee of your coming inheritance. He is the gift giver who empowers you for service, for ministry, who emboldens you for witness. So to sum it all up, brothers and sisters, we've seen this morning what Christ accomplished on the day of Pentecost, the day when Pentecost was fulfilled, how he poured out his spirit on his church, inaugurating the church as his new covenant temple and bringing in the first fruits of his harvest of all the nations. Because of what he has done, now you have received his spirit. If you have put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a member of his body, a living stone in his temple. And the application for you this morning is to be filled with the spirit so that you might grow in Christ and be empowered for witness as he continues to bring in the harvest of the nations to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in Jesus Christ, our risen and ascended Savior and Lord. And we thank you that he has poured out his spirit on the church. If it were not for your spirit within us, we would not know you. We would not understand your word. We would not be able to draw near to you. But what a privilege it is that you have given us your son, that you have given us your spirit, that you have made sinners like us into your holy temple. Lord, we pray that you would take hold of us more and more. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us to overflowing And if there is any aspect of our lives that is hidden or untouched by the power of your spirit, would you uncover it? Would you bring it to light so that we would be as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable in your sight? For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.